Now, now shall I tell of things that change? New being, New being out of old. Since, Since you, you, O gods, o gods, o gods created, mutable created mutable arts, created arts, mutable arts and gifts. Give me the voice. The voice. Give me the voice. The voice to tell the shifting, the shifting, the shifting story of the world. In the fourth book of Metamorphoses, the poet Ovid tells the story of a young boy of 15 who meets a nymph at a pool and, when he rejects her overtures, the boy is turned into a hermaphrodite. That is, the gods fuse the two of them together, the boy and the nymph, creating a being that is neither and both male and female. We spent a fair amount of time on this myth during our last episode, tracing the story all the way from ancient Greece to T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And as we learned along the way, Ovid didn't pick up this myth from previous stories or legends, as he did with so many of the other tales in his book, at least not exactly. The character of Hermaphroditus existed long before Ovid, with archaeological evidence of his worship and temple stretching well back before the Roman poet put pen to paper or quill to parchment, whatever. There are records of his cult, and artifacts and depictions remain showing the god, and don't forget, we're talking about a god here showing him as a young figure with delicate feminine form and features, sporting some decidedly um, non-feminine endowments. Before Ovid, there's no record of any transformation origin story for the god Hermaphroditus. This was simply how the god was depicted, it's quite possible he was a transplant from an older tradition in the Eastern religions, but in Ovid, Hermaphroditus was the son of Hermes and Aphrodite, and as we discussed in our last episode, he wasn't necessarily the black sheep of the family. There's Eros, of course, or Cupid if you prefer, with his bow, shooting anything with a heartbeat with his sapphire bullets of love, hashtag TMBG. But for my money, the oddest member of the family is Priapus, a rustic fertility god, a minor deity who watches over farmers and livestock, and who has a remarkable um, gift. As in, his phallus was quite literally as big as it could be without preventing him from getting around the countryside. And even so, he'd have to buy two tickets on the train, if you get my meaning. And so, we have delicate, young Hermaphroditus. So, Ovid took this existing god, Hermaphroditus, and he grafted onto his story a pre-existing bit of folklore about a local pool that had the power to soften men and turn their sensibilities into those of a woman, feminizing them. Anybody who bathed in the pool were softened, according to Ovid, drawing on this old folklore. As we discussed in our last episode, that pool is a real pool, it really exists, and the folklore around it is based on a particular historical event, 
unconnected to Hermaphrodite as the god. So, drawing on that event, Ovid inserted a backstory for the god and created a new tale for his metamorphoses. Essentially, he created a new myth by melding or combining these two myths together. But it's important to note that there's nothing to suggest that the god Hermaphroditus has any of the atypical genital characteristics to which science lent his name later in history. In fact, intersex individuals aren't necessarily the topic of this myth. The figure of Hermaphroditus has more in common with the concept of androgyny, that blurring of the boundaries between male and female, that mysterious fusion, the balancing act of perception that was perhaps best celebrated by Aerosmith. You get the idea. I'm splitting hairs here, I know, making a distinction between intersex individuals and androgyny. I realize that. My point is that the god Hermaphroditus isn't traditionally depicted as intersex so much as androgynous. I don't mean to imply that intersex people are or are not androgynous, or vice versa. And I'm well aware that even androgyny is double-sided. You have men who appear feminine, as well as women who appear masculine. In both cases, that Schrodinger-like superposition can sometimes end up occupying a mysterious, confusing, and even uncomfortable place in our minds. Not unlike the uncanny valley we talked about in the Pygmalion episode. Androgyny has a long and powerful connection to the occult arts, both in Eastern and Western mysticism. There's no surprise, really. The androgynous form is a perfect metaphor for virtually every magical concept. Hell, it is by definition occult, which means hidden, after all. For example, the famous sculpture, the Sleeping Hermaphrodite, is in and of itself something of a magic trick. It's sleight of hand. Viewed from one side, we see a sculpture of a beautiful and shapely maiden at rest. And from the other side, we see a youthful male relaxing and at peace. It's a deception, a trick of angles and perception. Stop that. The writer Camille Paglia calls the statue an incantation in marble, in which both states are invoked in a delicate tension that attracts and confounds at the same time, sometimes in the same moment. It's this uncertainty, this confusion, which so easily leads to fear and hate and worse. And to be clear, on one level, we're talking about symbols and abstractions. But we're talking about humanity as well. You only have to look to the current political climate surrounding the bathrooms at Target to see how rapidly that confusion mutates under the radiation of ignorance and religious dogma, producing genuinely frightening monstrosities. And by monstrosities, I don't mean the people who just have to take a leak. But I digress. Where was I? Right. In ancient times, intersex children were sometimes seen as omens of war, disaster, and pestilence. The intersex child, the 
innocent child, don't forget, was sometimes even sacrificed, often taken out into the wilderness and abandoned, left to die. You have to wonder what really brought the wrath and misfortune of the gods down upon a culture. Was it the birth of an innocent child or the heartless and cruel treatment it received because it was different? Just saying. It doesn't seem like the gods, any gods, would blame the baby. The baby, abandoned in the wilderness, recalls the story of Heracles, left alone in the countryside to fend for himself, that infant form hiding the masculine embodiment of a demigod. And of course, Heracles was found by Athena and Hermes, and they brought him back to Olympus to be cared for. And there he met Hebe, the cupbearer of the gods who would, in time, become his wife. The warrior and the servant, the sword and the chalice merged together, might and love, war and compassion, powerful symbolism embodied in the form of hermaphroditus. I know this is a sensitive topic. These things used to be hidden, unspoken. When I was a kid, we took a trip back to West Virginia to visit relatives on my mother's side of the family. One afternoon, we drove out into the country, out into the deep hollers, as they say. I have a distinct memory of being introduced to a number of elderly, if not ancient, great aunts and uncles, all sitting together on a porch of an old farmhouse. Their names were curiosities. Shortened nicknames derived from their given names, archaic and esoteric names from a previous century. Ran and Am, Clarissy, Cooch. I remember one old man in particular. He must have been in his 90s. His name had a strange ring to it. He was called Klein. But it would be much later when I was older when I would hear his story. Klein, and that was his given name not a nickname. He was born in the backwoods of West Virginia sometime in the late 1800s or very early 1900s, and Klein was born with both male and female genitalia. You can only imagine the ignorance and shame that must have plagued him from his earliest days throughout his entire life. Family folklore has it that his mother was so ashamed she never let anyone see him change his diapers or bathe him. They raised him as a boy, I'm told, doing their best to eclipse and hide the secret. It's hard to fault his parents, living in that time and in that place. It's almost impossible to imagine how you'd even be able to begin to cope without the benefit of our modern sensibilities or medical knowledge. But mostly... I think about Klein and what it must have been like for him. Imagine the day when he realized he was different. Different from his brothers and sisters. Different from his schoolmates. Imagine when they found out he was different from them. Imagine the questions he must have had. Imagine how few answers his parents could give him. I don't know much more about Klein or his history. 
I know that he grew up and, like virtually the entire branch of that family, went to go work in factories and mines, just like everybody else, but with one exception. During the week, he went to work like any other man in the holler. But on the weekends, Klein dressed up as a woman and went out to the saloons and bars, which is amazing to consider given the time and place he lived in. Again, androgyny has a deeply symbolic resonance in the mystical world, straddling the boundary between the male and the female, but also the physical and the metaphysical, the emotional and the intellect, the living and the dead. These balances represent, of course, the parents of the god Hermaphroditus as well. Hermes is a god of communication, of magic and mysticism, a god of intellect, a god of the underworld. And Aphrodite is a god of the physical and material, a god of emotion and sensuality, a god of the human. And in their child, all these qualities are mingled, incarnate. It's a powerful symbol, one that Carl Jung, for instance, viewed as representative of healing, that's Hermes again, something that subdues conflict, there's Aphrodite, and unites opposites. In the Jungian framework, Hermaphroditus represents a quest for balance, obtaining a peace and equilibrium within. So, is this god more than just a symbol or a metaphor? Is he a key that unlocks something primal in our subconscious mind? A key that, turned one way, opens the door to confusion and hatred, but turned another way, the door opens on mystery and self-knowledge and rapture? And does this key open more doors than just in our mind or our psyche, but doors in the spirit world as well. If you've been listening to this show long enough, you know what I think. Of course it does. Now, I'm no preacher, but if you come away with anything from this show, I hope at least that you might have an awareness or an openness to the idea that there is no difference between the physical or spiritual world that these two are intertwined, connected, codependent even. They're superimposed on top of each other, and the boundaries between them are thin, if not entirely non-existent. To act or move in one is to move in both. Or, to put it another way, as above, so below. That phrase has long been associated with mystical practice, and it appears in religious and occult texts in one form or another all throughout history from all over the world. As best I can tell, the origin of the phrase comes from a very specific source in the ancient esoteric practice of Hermeticism. Now, the core text in Hermeticism is something called the Emerald Tablet. This is a fabled grimoire of sorts that was said to contain the secret wisdom of all creation. 
Now, the first time the emerald tablet is mentioned, it's in an ancient Arabic work that was written sometime in the 6th, 7th, or 8th century. The book is older than virtually any Western text. It was itself a collection of much older, now lost texts, an attempt to preserve ancient mysticism and esoteric studies. Now, this book, and the Emerald Tablet specifically, is particularly influential in nearly all religion and mysticism that comes afterwards. Virtually every text that came after had a little bit of the Emerald Tablet encoded into its DNA. And the text of the tablet itself is puzzling. It's a collection of maxims or principles organized as a sort of treatise. The tradition holds that this text was given to us by the Moses of alchemists, Hermes Trismegistus, that is, the thrice-great Hermes. Some saw him as divine, merging of the gods Hermes and Thoth, the gods of magic and communication of hidden mysteries and writing. But other believed he was a man of great study and learning, who just passed down the knowledge that had been given to him from God in a hermetic chain through the ages, a secret knowledge that was hidden separately from all other texts, unseen. Who knows? But regardless, this is what the Emerald Tablet says. "'Tis true without error, certain and most true. That which is below is like that which is above, and that which is above is like that which is below, to do the miracles of one only thing. And as all things have been and arose from one by the meditation of one, so all things have their birth from this one thing, by adaptation. The sun is its father, the moon its mother, the wind hath carried it in its belly, the earth is its nurse. The father of all perfection in the world is here. Its force or power is entire if it be converted into earth. Separate thou the earth from the fire, the subtle from the gross, sweetly with great industry. It ascends from the earth to the heaven, and again it descends to the earth, and it receives the force of things superior and inferior. By this means you shall have the glory of the whole world, and thereby all obscurity shall fly from you. Its force is above all force, for it vanquishes every subtle thing and penetrates every solid thing. So the world was created. From this are and do come admirable adaptations, whereof the means or process is here in this. Hence I am called Hermes Trismegistus, having three parts of the philosophy of the whole world. That which I have said of the operation of the sun is accomplished and ended. Layered throughout that text are symbols and language long associated with natural magic and alchemy, the precursors to our modern scientific method. In fact, Isaac Newton was a practitioner of natural magic and alchemy. 
That text I just read is his translation of the Emerald Tablet. But alchemy has roots that stretch back far beyond Europe and go deep into the Far East and India, as well as the Muslim world. Now, perhaps the most central pursuit of alchemy was the transformation of lead into gold. At the heart of this pursuit was something called the Philosopher's Stone, a legendary and esoteric substance that was key to unlocking the mysteries that the alchemists were trying to explore. What's fascinating about alchemy is how deeply it's rooted in this kind of symbolism that's grounded in the natural world. Each element and substance is represented by specific symbols, and these can be arranged in sequences, visual pictograms that tell a story of sorts, oddly enough, that resemble hieroglyphics or even our modern comic books. These stories were recipes of a sort, but they were only intelligible to those who knew the code. Even within the pictograms, individual figures or scenes could show a dense layering of symbols working together to instruct, represent, or even invoke a specific secret or meaning. Another term for this, the term that the alchemists seemed to have preferred, was rebus. Now, a rebus is a representation of a word or a phrase using pictures or symbols that somehow suggest the word or the phrase without actually spelling it out. The word is Latin for by means of objects and seems to suggest the idea that not by words but by things, meaning is delivered. Now, Many things could be considered a rebus, a coat of arms, for instance, or hieroglyphics, or emojis. The image is abstract, but it points to literal meaning, often through association with other images. We're talking about literal versus figurative language. Our use of figurative, creative language in day-to-day -day life doesn't obscure truth. In fact, when done well, it does the opposite. Like magic, it reveals the truth with greater resonance than if we just simply said it. Metaphor, symbolism, allegory, these things leave a deeper impression sometimes more than the blank words themselves. And that's where many believe that the alchemists misunderstood or were misunderstood in what they were trying to accomplish. The transmutation of base elements like lead into noble ones like gold was perhaps not meant to be seen as a literal pursuit. It wasn't a monetary, materialistic goal. These things were allegorical, metaphorical representation of a much more important quest. The quest for enlightenment, for our higher self. History is full of stories of alchemists and would-be alchemists who poisoned themselves or blew themselves up, all because they took these symbols literally. They read the rebus as a recipe, and very often they paid the price. The magnum opus, the great work that alchemists sought to accomplish, was not a quest for pure gold. 
at least not in the literal sense. It was a quest for our purest self on both a spiritual and physical sphere. Perfection, a return to perfection as some phrased it, an idea of humanity that was represented in the earliest days of creation, before the fall. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And skipping ahead a few days, he then goes on to create Adam, raising him out of the dust. In ancient Hebrew folklore, Adam was created with four legs, four arms, two heads, and two torsos joined at the back. In essence, the first human was two beings, a man and a woman, joined together, fused into a single form. The man's name, of course, was Adam, and the woman was called Lilith. Now, Adam means earth, and Lilith means night. That's an interesting inversion of the myth of Gaia and Aranos. Now, according to the folklore, Adam and Lilith longed to see each other, and so, in time, they asked God to separate them, and he did. Once she could look on her brother in the face, and once he could see his sister's visage, what Adam and Lilith saw pleased them. They spent all their time together, even though they were separated, and eventually, when God came back, he found them rejoined once more, coupled together as before, only this time they were connected front to front, hashtag beast with two backs. And God was angry, though it isn't clear why. Many scholars seem to suggest that the woman, Lilith, was dominant and rode Adam, which apparently was seen as willful and rebellious to the patriarchal God and his male creation. So God separated them once again, hashtag God cockblock, and cast Lilith out of Eden. According to the folklore, it took the Lord a few more tries and experiments before he finally got it right, naming Adam's third wife Eve meaning life or breath. But, of course, she didn't exactly live up to those docile expectations any more than her dark sister. But still, Adam had someone who could join with him, presumably in a more acceptable position, less threatening to his delicate masculinity. You have to wonder if Adam missed Lilith, if he missed that first state, that purest form where they were together. To the alchemist, the hermaphrodite, the androgynous, represents the perfect balance of all the elements of the natural and spiritual world. The figure is literally a living rebus, with all of humanity's purity self-encoded into a perfect balance. At least, that's what the alchemical texts suggest. But reading them is a little bit like running a Shakespearean sonnet through Google Translate a couple of hundred times. They have an odd symbolism, a strange iconography, and there's lots of room for interpretation. So it's no wonder people were poisoning themselves and blowing themselves up. One text says, after the purification by fire and the dissolution of the bodies in the bath of mercury, the brother and sister are united.
And what emerges is this rebus, this coded message in which image and meaning are combined and so joined and also obscured. Two of the fundamental principles of alchemy are salve and coagula. Analysis and interpretation. Solvent and coagulation. Salve, the dissolution, the deconstruction, the analytical breaking down of a thing into its fundamental parts so that it might be understood. The hidden knowledge revealed. Coagula, the merging or reassembling of elements to create new substances, new alloys, marriages of separate concepts to form new creations. Salve and coagula. So is it any wonder that the alchemists saw their secret wisdom encoded in the text of Ovid's Metamorphoses? All the elements are there. Hermes and Aphrodite, male and female, earth and air and water and fire, the golden sun and the silver pool, a crucible in which the transformation is achieved, and, emerging from this cauldron, a perfection, a mystery incarnate. To the alchemist, his unified form, this perfectly balanced androgynous self, was a petrolith, a pure substance, an element strengthened against temptation or weakness. It was the philosopher's stone. It was the pure, unselfish aim of alchemy, pursued for its own sake with no thought of reward. The lead, our gross materialistic mind and body, transformed into purest gold, a body and soul perfectly balanced. These are potent symbols, and layers of meaning are merged within them. But why? Why all the allegory, all the symbolism? Why cloak the meaning in this strange and secret code that no one can decipher? It's the opposite of evangelism. Monotheism is competitive. It wants to spread and conquer. But the occult, by definition, wants to hide. It's the difference between the convert and the initiate. Why would such a powerful recipe for the elevation of all humanity be obscured and hidden if the motivations of the alchemists were truly pure and unselfish? I don't know. Maybe they sought to keep it from falling into the wrong hands. With great power comes great temptation, maybe. Maybe they feared persecution, though they seem to have operated like many magicians right there in plain sight. Or maybe they hid their mysteries in order to maintain their power structure, the priesthood and the laity. Maybe their intentions at the end of the day weren't as noble as they pretended. Who knows? Or maybe it was nothing more than the fashion of the day. Maybe they adopted the latest literary device to serve as the framing structure for their great work. But when the fashionable rebus faded, the code was unbreakable. Or, as it says in the Rosarium Philosophorium, Whenever we have spoken openly, we have said nothing. But when we have written something in code, 
we have concealed the truth. Again, no one knows why. Maybe it's just in our nature to keep secrets. Like my grandmother's recipe for biscuits, long coveted by everyone in the family, but it had to be passed down in secret to a select few. And at her funeral, everyone there realized that none of us really knew the recipe anymore. It's worth noting that there was a faction in history who spoke out against the use of these obscure idioms to hide knowledge. Clearly, those alchemists didn't win the argument. With all of our modern achievements and enlightened sensibilities, it's tempting to look back at the alchemists with all their symbolism and mystery and sneer at the primitive assumptions, the archaic and incomprehensible codes, and their dangerous, feckless experiments. Sure, those ideals and ideas form some of the foundation upon which our own science and knowledge sit. And I guess the transformation of lead into gold is a fascinating little allegory for our own enlightenment and noble advancement, but have you heard the latest about the iPhone 7? All right, let's turn our gaze from the past here and look a little bit more recently. In the early days of 2016, we saw the passing of one of the most puzzling, intriguing, and successful modern magicians of our time. Possibly the greatest practitioner of the art. That is to say magic, which is, after all, art itself. We saw him reach for that final, if anything is ever truly final, ascension. The path to, if not his perfect form, then at least the next branch on the tree. And, as a gift to all of us, he left a going-away present. This modern, and then postmodern alchemist and shaman left behind one final work. David Bowie's final album, Black Star, and the accompanying videos that were released with it, are the capstone for his magnum opus, his great work. Black Star is a magical working, an alchemical text carefully encoded with his own personal mythology, but also infused and fused with those shared symbols that we all have encoded into our subconscious. From his earliest days, Bowie always straddled the boundary, embodying both the shaman and the showman. Flamboyant, androgynous, fluid and adept, mercurial and romantic, male and female, a voice, an alloy of gold and silver mingled, cold and calculated, impulsive and chaotic, fascist and liberal, cruel and kind, terrestrial and otherworldly. And Bowie wasn't the only one. We lost Prince this year as well. Though he was taken from us unexpectedly, his magnum opus unfinished. Like Bowie, Prince was another pop shaman blurring many of the same lines between the masculine and the feminine, the sacred and profane, the sensual and the virginal. 
His signature color, purple, represented a melding of the cold and the hot, the male and the female, the sun and the moon. And his literal signature, his icon, his reinvention and renaming of himself, an important step for every magician, it was a literal sigil, a magical symbol charged by the magician's will designed to enact a specific magical outcome. A sigil that, we're told, was designed by Prince himself to be a merging of the ancient symbols for the male and the female, the marriage of anima and animus. There has long been an element of mystery and androgyny in our priests and priestesses, our shamans and magicians. It's a legacy passed from adept to apprentice over generations. It's a balance of learning and rivalry that creates a chemical reaction, an energy that drives the engine which keeps the art alive. David Bowie, Oscar Wilde, Madonna, William S. Burroughs, Austin Osmond Spare, Prince, Virginia Woolf, Alistair Crowley, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, Lady Gaga, Mick Jagger, Gertrude Stein, Marlena Dietrich, the list goes on and on. Celibate priests and nuns, corrupt hellfire preachers, vestal virgins and temple prostitutes and sky-clad witches and warlocks and shamans and medicine men and the weird women of the woods, faith healers and frauds and miracle workers, the list goes on and on. Now, Bowie was not the only 20th century shaman to marry magic and art. Hermes and Aphrodite through his life and work, but to my way of thinking, Bowie was one of the purest, most self-aware. Maybe because he was himself a student of these things, an avid explorer of the esoteric and occult landscapes, a dabbler in magical practices and mysteries, and yes, even a practitioner of Kabbalah long before Madonna or Gwyneth Paltrow ever put a red thread around their wrist. Bowie crossed boundaries in his search for meaning, for his art, and maybe even seeking fulfillment of his own self and identity, seeking perfection, elevation, and completeness. Completeness. Coagula. Unfortunately, the 20th century can also boast some of the most destructive acts of history, one in particular that upset any chance of balance in this world. I'm talking about the splitting of the atom, fission, solve. And what have we learned from this brutal alchemy? What have we gained? Like the ancients, we dabbled in texts we did not understand, playing in our laboratories, hung-in-cheek Rebus, the fat man, the little boy, making a new sun that made shadows of the people it shone down on, and they could never be put back together again. Salve. There are some who see this merely as an instrument of politics or warfare, advancement of our abilities to get our own way on the playground. But, to my way of thinking, these things are far more resonant and their destruction extends into the metaphysical. By splitting the atom, we dissolved the chemical marriage 
upsetting the balance of reality itself, possibly forever. And now, in the 21st century, as we watch new leaders pretend to care about the balance of power, we see a new and more deeply personal alchemy coming into view. The transhumanist movement embodies all of the core principles of the ancient alchemist. The marriage of Hermes, the technological, and Aphrodite, the physical, crossing the boundaries of natural law and perhaps even the boundaries of identity, blurring the lines of what can be considered human and what cannot. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term, transhumanism refers to a burgeoning movement set on embracing our technological advancements in order to evolve beyond our physical limitations. All of us, whether we know it or not, are a part of this evolution. Our computers, our cars, our cell phones, our internet, these things extend our capabilities and limit them at the same time. And some transhumanists go so far as to alter their own bodies, merging technology with their own flesh. Like the ancient alchemists, some see this as a path to our higher selves, to immortality, maybe even to Godhead. Others see it as just another misrepresentation of the principles, a literal reading of the allegory, the cyborg as a new rebus. It's an ambition to rise above, but in reality, it may just be another Tower of Babel waiting to fall. I don't know where the truth is, but I believe we can't achieve any evolution, any enlightenment, any step towards completeness by ourselves. We can't do it alone in autonomy and disconnection. As with the story of the first creation, with Adam and Lilith, with Salmasis and Hermaphroditus, we can only achieve our own great work, our own perfection and completion, by coming together, casting off the present forms and imperfect patterns imposed on us, writing together a new text for ourselves, with ourselves, merging with each other to become whole at last. Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. The contents of this episode are copyright 2016 and may not be reproduced, transmitted, or otherwise copied without T.M. Camp's express written permission. Failure to do so is a violation of international copyright law, and you will find over time that the boundaries of your life, your soul, your psyche, 
blur beyond recognition until you can no longer discover the path that you should be on, wandering deep into the shadows of this world, never to return again to solid, substantial form. Visit us online at findyourgods.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com findyourgods. You can also find us on Twitter at findyourgods. And we're even on Pinterest, Instagram, and Tumblr because, you know, why not? Thank you.